Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Fernando Cienfuegos coming to you live from Studio B in USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Brian Sarabia. It's Wednesday, September 21st. On today's show, the LA mayoral and sheriff debates promise mudslinging and controversy. Part two of USC Annenberg's celebration of its 50th anniversary. And a new finding from USC School of Gerontology may lead to better treatments for Alzheimer's. All that and more from where we are. As Los Angeles Election Day looms, two debates will be taking place this evening. An incumbent sheriff embroiled in controversy will square off with his challenger, and two USC-affiliated candidates will will battle for public support in their mayoral campaign. Michael Mellinger joins us live to talk about it. Michael, welcome. Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here. So what's the overview um, as we head into the debate tonight? Brian, as we head into the debate tonight, it's important to remember these are two extremely important positions in Los Angeles politics. The mayor, of course, oversees the city of Los Angeles and the LAPD, while the county sheriff oversees unincorporated areas like East Los Angeles and South Whittier and areas that no longer maintain their police forces. But nonetheless, both remain influential, and I think it's something that we really need to talk about. And so today I sat down with Daniel Schnur, a professor at Annenberg. Certainly given the immense overlap between the city and the county, there's no shortage of opportunities for interaction, but they will affect our lives from different levels of government even if ultimately the impact is on on many of the same people. And so these two positions remain independent of one another. But in other words, they are both highly influential. And while there may be little to no direct overlap, they often make decisions that affect the same populations of people. And so it's important to watch both. Okay, Michael. So let's dive into the sheriff's race. What's important there? So... We reported a story last week about the sheriff, and it was particularly about the raid that the sheriff conducted on Los Angeles Supervisor Sheila Kuehl's house. And Kuehl's house was searched as part of an investigation the sheriff had been working on that was about potential improper help given to a local nonprofit. And so this action comes at a really pivotal time, you know, the raid being so close to the debate. I think something to watch for the debate tonight, especially the sheriff's debate, is how this topic is handled and how the sheriff responds. So I'd love to roll a clip here from a discussion I also had this morning with Robert Shrum. He's the director of the Center for Political Future at USC. But he doesn't seem capable of moderating his behavior. The raid on Sheila Kuehl's house was ridiculous, and the court is finding that to be the case. The California attorney general has intervened. And so last week we ran a story in its entirety about this topic, but... Today we're learning, and and within the last day we're learning, that the Attorney General's office has overtaken this investigation and taken it away from the Sheriff's Department. So we'll see how that's handled tonight. One thing I'd like to know, does the Sheriff have any support heading into tonight's debate? Well, that poses an interesting question. The Sheriff, I've learned, is quite an interesting and polarizing figure. He has folks who really support them and a large population that doesn't. And Professor Schnur actually talked about this with me this morning. People who love him, adore him, and think he's exactly what the city of uh, the county of Los Angeles needs to crack down more forcefully on crime and protect the public safety. 
those who dislike him absolutely despise him, thinking that he has run the sheriff's office as a personal fiefdom. And what about the mayor's race? What's most relevant there? You know, right there, it's hard to ignore the amount that the university is underscoring tonight's debate. At what point, USC was even set to host tonight's debate, but will no longer be doing so. Both Karen Bass and Rick Caruso have extensive ties to the university, and on top of that, both have scandals surrounding their involvement here. I talked with Professor Schnur about this. Representative Bass received a scholarship from our School of Social Work, and there have been charges that the school expected some type of special consideration in return for that gift. And of course, Rick Caruso was the chair of SC's Board of Trustees for many years during a very difficult time in the university's history. And he's faced charges about how he's handled his responsibilities over that time, particularly as it related to the scandals relating to the Keck School of Medicine's former dean. For the USC community, and I mean the community here on campus, or the community that's involved with the university, Looking closely at these ties the candidates have to the school becomes a really interesting angle through which to watch tonight's debate. And I think for anybody that is affiliated with the university and that plans to watch tonight's debate, I think looking at how the university underscores the whole thing and through that lens is going to be really, really insightful. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Brian, for having me. It was great to talk about this. Today marked the second day of celebration commemorating Annenberg's 50th anniversary. Ashley Wynn sat down with Mariela Gomez, a journalism grad student and one of the speakers at yesterday's festivities, to reflect on the history, values, and challenges that make up the Annenberg experience. Mariela, you delivered a beautiful speech before a star-studded audience yesterday on your experience as a first-gen college student at Annenberg. How did that feel? It felt kind of surreal. Um, I am first generation and I'm Latina. My parents are farm workers. So to be at a place like USC Annenberg voicing my experience, not just mine, but of my community, it really felt um, just honestly surreal. Um, it It was amazing and I would do it all over again. How do you view your position as a role model for future journalists of color and other underrepresented groups? I'm very intentional about always paying it forward because I've had so many people ahead of me that have paid it forward to me. Um, So I'm always happy to serve as a resource for somebody else. It really fills me with um, purpose. You mentioned paying it forward. What does that mean to you? I definitely want to serve as a mentor for um, just at any university, particularly the ones that I've attended, um, any first generation student of color, I would love to serve as a mentor. But not just that. Um, honestly, I can't win for the day until I have a full time job. Um, so I can just kind of maybe even start a scholarship fund for students because scholarship has been so important to me and it's, you know, it's allowed me to study here. Journalism is the art of storytelling. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest tip you could give to someone who's looking to get good at storytelling? Well, let me tell you, I feel like I'm always learning. Um, But the biggest tip is just to trust your gut instinct um, when it comes to telling a story. Is there anything you think Annenberg could do better for our next 50 years? Always room for improvement. 
no matter who you are or the institution but like first of all I just want to say I feel like Annenberg has made great strides but honestly I think it's hiring more faculty professors and just professionals of color not even of color just those that are usually not represented so far the most monumental sources that I've had have all came the most monumental help that I've had it has been from professors that I feel like I can relate to. That was Ashley Wynn talking to journalism grad student Mariela Gomez. USC's newest major called the Business Cinematic Arts launched yesterday and allows students to study at the School of Cinematic Arts and Marshall School of Business. Here is Brandon Garcia with the details. Yesterday, USC launched its latest major, the Business Cinematic Arts BCA program. This new degree is offered at the Marshall School of Business, where students now have the opportunity to emphasize their business studies in cinematic arts. Students can enroll in the degree program only as a first semester Marshall freshman and will be available to take courses at both SCA and Marshall. The program is geared towards Marshall students interested in the business aspect of the entertainment world and the industry as a whole. Students will have the opportunity to take part in a specialized internship during their sophomore year and hear guest speakers from the industry to provide insight on current relevant trends. Soli Liadi, a student at USC Marshall, provided her perspective on the value the program can offer to students. Um, I think it's really good because they're able to like learn more about both sides um, of what they're interested in and it will overall make their experience more um, robust and profound, and maybe they'll overall have more fun. While the program offers numerous benefits and opportunities, some students are concerned in regards to placing the program in Marshall and not SCA. Rachel Blanton, a student minoring in cinematic arts, believes it is a way for Marshall to quote-unquote bolster collaboration between the schools. And I feel like SCA is much more about preserving the art, and to swap that out for profit is to compromise the integrity of what we create here. Rachel's concerns come from her perspective on the potential negative direction of the entertainment industry with platforms like HBO Max's push for a more business aspect than the art itself. Only time will tell if her prediction will come true. For Annenberg Media, I'm Brandon Garcia. Today is World Alzheimer's Day. As Ethan Wong reports, a breakthrough discovery was made by students at the USC Leonard Davis School of Gerontology. Alzheimer's disease is the leading cause of dementia and memory loss globally. The CDC says nearly 6 million people in the U.S. currently experience it. While a cure has yet to be found, some researchers are making great strides. A team of PhD students found a microprotein they named Schmooze. As reported in their paper from Molecular Psychiatry, they discovered a genetic mutation that partially makes schmooze inactive, leading to a 30% increase in the risk of Alzheimer's. Lead author Brendan Miller sees these findings as a potential door into new drug research and treatment. This pinpoints this new field of microproteins as an untapped source for explaining neurodegeneration. So, uh, Obviously, the next step would see if there's some type of way to engineer this peptide to serve as a drug candidate in Alzheimer's disease and test it. But finding new solutions is not the only goal of neurologists. Dr. Helena Chu is the chair of the Department of Neurology at the Keck School of Medicine. We want a cure. There's, there's so many things in neurology 
that we want to cure and Alzheimer's and strokes and Parkinson's disease and ALS, we want to cure. But in the meantime, you know, we're committed to the care. And though there are many experiencing the disease, research has come a very long way. As neurologist Dr. Paul Eisen of the Keck School of Medicine says, I would like to convey this sense of optimism that this is a terrible disease. It's the most feared disease of aging. It's very, very common, affects every family. Um, and so I would like to spread a message of optimism that we've made a lot of progress as hard as this work has been. And many of us have been working on this for decades. World Alzheimer's Day is recognized in support of those dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's, as well as a celebration of the breakthroughs being made and the hope of memories regained. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ethan Huang. While Los Angeles County residents grieve a string of opioid-related deaths at local high schools, questions about how to prevent them are once again in the spotlight. As Philippe Salata reports, the rise of synthetic opioid fentanyl has only made matters more pressing. A USC Annenberg analysis has found that fentanyl-related deaths in Los Angeles County have been doubling on average for the last five years. Well, I should start by saying Los Angeles County is in the midst of an unprecedented overdose crisis. That's Dr. Brian Hurley. He's an addiction specialist and a director at the L.A. County Department of Public Health. Fentanyl is more toxic than other opioids. And by toxic, I don't necessarily mean intrinsically poisonous. I just mean a little bit is the difference between being comfortably high and being dead. Fentanyl can be a hundred times stronger than morphine. It is now increasingly being used to enhance the intensity of other recreational drugs, opening the dangers to a wider demographic. People have been using heroin in L.A. for a very long time, but what we have seen is fentanyl now in the opioid supply. So that includes heroin, that includes illicitly manufactured pills, but we're also seeing fentanyl in methamphetamine and cocaine. This is one of the many reasons why public health officials in California have advocated for legislation such as SB 57. The bill would legalize sites for controlled drug consumption and increase access to the life-saving overdose antidote, Narcan. After SB 57 was narrowly passed by the state assembly in August, Governor Newsom vetoed the bill. Ricky Bluthenthal, an associate dean from USC's Keck School of Medicine, sees this as a result of leaving certain public health decisions in the hands of politicians. Implementing effective strategies that preserve the lives of people who use drugs in a non-punitive way are not politically popular in general. And because, unfortunately, these decisions have to be made by politicians, they can be reticent to act. And as fentanyl overdoses are not isolated to those touched by addiction, this emergency is reaching the most unexpected victims. Access to emergency services could mean life or death. That's how SDSU student Henry Stephen lost his friend Nick. He did fine in school. We got all of his work done. He never acted weird. He never did anything bad to anybody until finally he uh, had been on a vacation and he had taken a pill and he had just suddenly overdosed and died. Meanwhile, lawmakers will have to figure out how to overcome roadblocks to implement solutions. 
you just have to empower the public health authorities to act in the best interest of population health. Um, and you can do that quietly, right? But, you know, you, you, you just sort of need to give them the permission to do it. Um, and, um, and the legal standing to, to protect it. With SB 57 held up, for now, it has fallen on local authorities to take up the slack. But with many players at the table, arriving at an effective solution will take time. For Annenberg Media, this is Philip Salata. In light of the National Hispanic Heritage Month, it seems important to talk about something that connects us all, food. A museum in downtown LA features a group of grandmothers who cooked, preserved, and passed on Mexican food culture through generations. Prachi Singh paid a visit to the museum. La Plaza Cocina, a museum in LA, is exploring the history and culture of Mexican food. The exhibit is called Abuelita's Kitchen Mexican Food Stories. USC Spanish professor Sarah Portnoy put together this exhibit with her team of students. I've been teaching about like Latino food culture for, I don't know, 12 years now, let's say, at USC in Spanish. Uh, so I've been assigning my students to do what are called oral histories for a long time, interview somebody and ask them about the food story. And over the pandemic, uh, I got this idea to create an exhibition for, for this museum called the Plaza de Cultura y Arte downtown. The exhibit is divided into three different themes, identity, place, and the dish. Vibrant family photos hang on one wall, telling us the stories about who they are. Another wall has a large map that shows us where they are from. Colorful threads crisscrossing on the map link their roots in Mexico to their SoCal neighborhoods. And then there are QR codes sprinkled around the exhibit with audio stories like this one by Margarita Nevarez. Food brings people closer together. And that's one of the things that I did learn from my mother, that food, no matter what it is, it could be a pot of beans, it could be una olla de frijoles recién cocidos, un arrocito, unas quesadillas, una salsita. That food alone brings people together and you're laughing, you're sharing, you're happy, you're content, and your belly is full. And then there's the cookware, the value of which the facility coordinator at La Plaza Cocina, Natalie Martinez, told me about. And it kind of shows how these culinary devices that we use in the everyday kitchen are not just, you know, items that we just put in a drawer. They have historical significance to them and to these families. They're, those are things that you should keep with you just because, you know, you'll never, you can't purchase memories in a store. And as Sarah Portnoy says, cherishing memories is exactly what this exhibit is all about. Because it's a way for people to feel pride in their identity, their culture, their culinary traditions, and uh, value them and recognize that it's important to pass it down to future generations, right? Not just the one month of the year, that's Latinx Heritage Month, but all the time. So it's kind of a love letter to all those grandmothers to kind of say, hey, thank you for what you've done for the family. Here is uh, something to dedicate to you and as a reminder for the public to be like, you know, it's not a whole respect your elders, you know, gallery. It's more like honor your elders, thank your elders for what they have endured to get you to where you are. The exhibit is free and open Wednesday through Sunday at noon till October 23rd. For Annenberg Media, I'm Prachi Singh. K-pop, or Korean pop music, has taken the world by storm within the past few years, and it's now reached USC's campus. Peyton May previews the event. 
This Friday, September 23rd, a K-pop festa consisting of a host panel, performances, and even a dance competition will be held in the Annenberg Auditorium in McCarthy Quad. Heijin Lee, an assistant professor of communications and instructor of Annenberg's own course on K-pop, is hosting the event along with being featured in it. Students of Professor Lee's class express their interest and opinion about the event. And I know there's definitely like a culture that's surrounding Korean culture here at USC. So it's nice to like get people who already are exposed to it and very interested and passionate about it, but then also expose people who might not know too much about it, especially me coming from a perspective of not knowing too much about it. I think USC is in a really like opportunistic position right now to be a sort of ambassador for this. Like there's a reason that they chose USC versus like other colleges in LA because like K-pop is really known down here, but I think they chose USC's for a specific reason. I'd really like to see USC take advantage of that and you know, maybe continue doing K-pop festivals or other festivals promoting like Asian culture here. Although K-pop has spread like wildfire throughout American media, it's important to note that an event like this, with performances from high-profile artists on a college campus, is pretty rare. Performances by Kingdom and Kim Sejong are expected, and they are said to go from 6 to 9 p.m. To find out more and to register for the event, you can visit Annenberg's website. For Annenberg Media, I'm Peyton May. Not Scary Farm in Buena Park opens tomorrow night. As Amanda Coscarelli reports, a new policy may steer parkgoers away. It's that time of year again. Not Scary Farm opens tomorrow. For nearly 50 years, it's been frightening people with scare zones, mazes, and roaming monsters. It's a lot like Universal's Halloween Horror Nights, attracting groups of teens and young adults. I like breathing in all the fog and seeing the crazy monsters chase people around and standing in the nice lighting. When an actual scare occurs, like you think you've seen it all and something gets you, that's, that's special. But this year, there's a small twist. Any guest 17 years and younger will need to be accompanied by a chaperone who's at least 21 years old. The policy was put in place this summer after some teenagers got into a brawl that caused the park to shut down three hours early. It only applied to the weekends, but now the policy extends to all nights of Not Scary Farm, Thursday through Sunday. If you plan to chaperone a minor, you must show a photo ID that has your date of birth, carry a phone, and remain inside the park. You can also only accompany four guests at a time. While some longtime guests plan to return for the scare zones, some park goers say that they're going to forego this year's event. Yeah, it kind of made me less inclined to coming over. Not Scary Farm will be open through Halloween night. Guests should refer to the Code of Conduct at Knots.com for a full list of safety regulations. For Annenberg Media, I'm Amanda Coscarelli. And that's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. This show was produced by Guillermo Guerrero and Jeffrey Lee. Fernando Cienfuegos is our technical operator, and Derek Renfro composed our theme music. Be sure to check us out on YouTube at Annenberg Radio News. Also, follow us on Instagram at Annenberg Radio and subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're looking for even more news, be sure to download Annie, Annenberg's news app. I'm Fernando Cienfuegos. And I'm Brian Sarabia. 
from all of us at Annenberg Radio, wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again for From, from Where, Where We, we are. are.